Welcome to the RPG Design Panelcast, presenting the very best panels, seminars, and other recordings about role-playing game design and publishing. These panels are made possible by the generous contributions of Double Exposure and their leading game design convention, Metatopia. Episode 68, Executing a Smart Crowdfunding Campaign. Recorded at Metatopia 2014. Presented by Fred Hicks, Joshua A.C. Newman, and Hannah Schaefer. Since this panel recording is about Kickstarters, I thought it might be an appropriate time to plug a couple projects that I've been working on both directly and indirectly over the past few years. The first one is titled SIG, The City Between. SIG is a multiplayer fantasy setting which expands the Spark Roleplay game. It's a place where issues of family, of faith, of identity, and of heritage all meet. I'm also experimenting with Kickstarter in this context by providing the final version of the text to all backers the moment they sign up, and by using a backer count, my metric for stretch goals for my multiple contributors. So I recommend you check it out. Next up is Headspace, a role-playing game designed by Mark Richardson of Green Hat Designs. Headspace is a shared consciousness cyberpunk tabletop RPG powered by the apocalypse. Mark has done a fantastic job of altering the core system of the apocalypse world engine to suit emotional games in a cyberpunk setting. He's done a fantastic job, and I'm proud to have helped him on this little project. There's been a lot of discussion of Headspace in episodes 40, 50, and 57, and I'm eager to have this come out on Kickstarter on October 20th, 2015. Now that that's out of the way, here's the show. Um, this is executing a smart crowdfunding campaign. Um, we are, uh, we have a variety of experience here. We're going to introduce ourselves. Um, we're going to try to give the majority of it over to audience Q&A because there are a number of crowdfunding panels here, and uh, we don't want to you know, spend 40 minutes talking about stuff you've already heard. Um, so uh, uh, let's get going. I'm Fred Hicks. I'm with Evil Hat. I've run five or six Kickstarters at various scales. Um, and uh, uh, I am Hannah Schaefer, and I did my first Kickstarter this past spring uh, for a game called Questlandia, uh, and it was successful. It was sort of a smaller scale Kickstarter, although it ended up being more successful than I had anticipated, which is great. Um, but it's a little bit more challenging. So. <laughs> and the world one where my one get a copy of Questlandia. <laughs> Selling them here. <laughs> I'm Joshua A.C. Newman. Um, I'm a, yeah, I've done four Kickstarter campaigns, three of them game-related, uh, and uh, I have some really entertaining um, disasters that I've dealt with, and that's, that's part of what we're going to be talking about right here. Right. Uh, so um, one of the things we've talked about on the prior panel um, is audience acquisition. Um, 
you really do need to show up to a Kickstarter uh, like already with some kind of an audience in hand because uh, they're going to be your springboard for getting to people who haven't heard. Uh, somebody launching a campaign and going, yeah, Kickstarter, where are the people? Um, is not going to get you what, what you're looking for. Um, you know, I've, I've joked that uh, if people want to bet like, something on the order of the big core Kickstarter that we uh, ran uh, first, spend 10 years building an audience. Um, uh, it's a little bit flip, but it also has a kind of a truth to it. But you've been talking about like some, we were talking earlier about uh, some community building stuff, and I wanted to hear about that. Um, I mean, I one of the things that was great was before running my own Kickstarter, I had the opportunity to help with other people's Kickstarters, so I sort of got to see some of the common mistakes that get made, or um, some just generally how it works. Um, that's also one thing is like if you know somebody who's doing a Kickstarter, ask if they need any help. Um, but yeah, about uh, I've been my game was in development for about three years, and what that three years looked like was going to events like this um, and talking to people about game design even before my game was anywhere near finished. I was still introducing myself. I was getting connected with communities online um, and I was not thinking about it in terms of like a marketing perspective. Like, oh, I have to make friends because eventually they'll give me money. Um, it, it has to come from a really earnest place. Um, so I was just sort of figuring out who my people were um, and, you know, talking to people who play the same kind of games that I enjoy and um, much to my surprise and delight, when I finally did launch my Kickstarter, I found that I actually already had fans and that was really cool um, and it, you know, felt like all of that work that I had been doing um, that never really felt like work had paid off, um, but you have to do it. Um, it's, it's really hard to come out of nowhere and have never talked about your game or have never really connected with the community and have like a runaway success. Um, it's, I'm sure there are examples of it happening, but don't count on it. So. Well, most Kickstarters are not flukes um, when, when they have success, right? There's, there's, there's a number of factors uh, going into it, but audience being the primary one. Yeah, uh, my biggest success, Kickstarter success was Mobile Frame Zero which had been, the game had existed in one form or another for 10 years by the time we were running a Kickstarter for it and uh, what that meant was that we had a really devoted core group of players by which I mean, and I'm not exaggerating as many as 8 devoted players <laughs> and the thing is that like any fire and there's one right there any any fire starts with a little bit of kindling and a fire, and when somebody shows up at Kickstarter and with without having done this basic um, social groundwork, it's like putting a pile of sticks on the ground and hoping it turns into a fire. Um, and you know, one time in a thousand that catches fire because lightning struck. Uh, but the rest of the time, you actually have to you have to have people who are going to light that fire for you. And that, that, Fires were getting raided by the SWAT team all over. So the um, input that we uh, the input that we get to that are are those people who are devoted, and we're not talking about we're not even talking about having a Fred Hicks size audience. I mean, I'm really I'm talking about like eight people around the world who are just willing to interact with me enthusiastically on Twitter about it. 
and the difference between that and zero is enormous. It's 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 um, it's inestimable. Um, and I was working on it. Uh, Vincent was talking about it just a little bit on his blog, which mean, meant that his his audience he, he originally wrote the game. Uh, uh, we're all interacting with it, and it meant that by the time it started. Um, there were people who had once heard of it and they were like, wait, is that the same game? Like, there were enough people that were sort of curious about it who would then back it, and then um, those people talked to more people and talked to more people, just like that shampoo. We also, uh, as uh, mentioned in the other panel, um, uh, managed to adopt a you know, healthy portion of the Lego fan audience. That's part of where you really got your... It's actually not quite true. Um, it was uh, my big boom was Penny Arcade picking it up. Oh, right, was, right, it, right. Was, it was gamers. Um, the Lego community. Uh, I had an ally in the Lego community. Uh, there's a uh, there's another Lego war game called Brick Wars, which is a completely different kind of game. And Mike Rayhawk, who uh, uh, wrote Brick Wars and works for Lego now. Um, has the I mean, Brick Wars is completely ridiculous and profane by by design, um, and it's he wrote these rules because he's making fun of the players of this game. Uh, so uh, it, he winds up with a very very different uh, different game, and he, so he was really enthusiastic about what I was doing and what Vincent was doing because it's it's a different it's a different thing. He was excited to see somebody doing something different. So then his audience was was in on it. That happened because we were going around like I kind of knew his thing and. He was distantly aware of Mechaton, which had been back before. And but once this once the rubber was on the road, uh, Mike and I actually started talking, and it turned out he moved twenty miles away from me, from all the way across the country to across this. Uh, so so like the fact that he had heard of it before, like it just meant that he he heard of it. He didn't really know that much about it. He just thought it was a neat idea. Like now, this was this this was something he could actually support, not just by backing the project, but by telling people about telling telling people to speak about it. I, I mean, I, I also I was also talking to like Mecha fans, um, uh, Mecha anime fans, uh, and wargaming fans, and the wargaming thing didn't really pan out. Uh, I think it's a particularly insular community, and uh, so it was Legos and. And robots, and then refugees from Warhammer. <laughs> so ultimately, whether you're starting with you know a group of eight people, but, you know a small single themed, small single wow, small single themed uh, audience, or um, pieces parts for multiple audiences, as uh, was the case with Friend Zero, um, you're uh, uh, you're basically looking to get like some community involvement activity um, and some. As Hannah was saying, genuine interaction with those people. Be become a part of those communities uh, around the things that excite you about what what those communities are about, not around your game. Um, uh, and then eventually connect those enthusiasm together. Um, but I think that's enough about the audience stuff for, for just now. Um, you know, another uh, very important part of your uh, your planning uh, leading to Kickstarter is uh, you know anticipating costs as much as possible. Um, and uh, what was that like for you? Yeah, I mean, it was helpful for me that I had uh, had an opportunity to help Joshua on one of his Kickstarters. Um, I know. Um, 
so I had had the opportunity to sort of help Joshua with the Kickstarter and walk through that process. Um, but, you know, we were talking about, I knew that we were talking about really different scales of operation. I mean, I was hoping that maybe 50 people would support my Kickstarter. Oh, I hope I have 50 friends. Um, and I was writing lists of my friends and question mark, like, is this person a friend who I'm supporting? Um, but I, um, gosh, some of the things that went into estimating costs. Uh, well, first there's, um, Amazon is the payment processor, so they take a percentage, and Kickstarter takes a percentage, so it's really important to know what those percentages are. I think they're around 5% each, um, but don't be talking about I'm going to get started in my microphone. Um, no, uh, uh, you, you should plan for it being a total 10% between the two of them. Yeah. It, you might be able to get like a percent or two back from that, depending on the size of the pledges and how um, Amazon rates the, the factors going into uh, uh, the, the payment process. But that is the worst plan for them to send. Would you calculate by taking your total costs and multiplying it by 111%, which might seem trivial, <laughs> but that amount of being wrong, if you're a success, can cripple your project. Yeah, the one percent wiggle. Yeah, I mean, if you if you try to plan your costs as tightly as possible, yeah. That, yeah, I, I mean, you know, it was the first time that I was doing this, so some of it was some of it was guesswork. Guesswork, honestly. I mean, there were things like international shipping, which uh, I had to, yeah, which is everybody's nightmare. Um, and you know, at one point, at one point, somebody had messaged me from you know, Australia or something saying, wow, I'm so excited to pack your Kickstarter. Your international shipping rates are so cheap. And I like, had Whoa. a panic attack. <laughs> 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 uh, and it actually ended up being totally okay. But, you know, I mean, what I did was when I when there was a cost that was unclear to me, like costs that were clear were like I had talked to, um, you know, printers, and I knew exactly what it would cost to do a certain print run and what the price breaks were going to be. And then when prices, when costs were unclear, I looked at like 20 other Kickstarters that I thought were in the same range and uh, averaged what they did for international shipping. Uh, and I looked at some failed Kickstarters too, which is a bummer, but they're out there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it's it's also really good market research. Um, so if you go to the bottom of uh, your Kickstarter screen, you can see stuff that's local. And if you keep scrolling, you'll get to the list of unsuccessful stuff. And like, watch some cat videos afterwards because it's really sad. <laughs> um, but it's also it's good market research um, to see you know the people who. Um, have no backers, then you're like, who did you talk to? Or, How did your mom or, not know that you were running this? <laughs> or, aren't, or aren't, you know, just clearly aren't charging enough for shipping, or just clearly their numbers, you know. Uh, I mean, I think one of the biggest mistakes, especially with creators, is that you're like, oh, I'm really worried I'm asking for too much, so let me put my number as low as possible so it's a success. But, like, then you won't be able to deliver your thing if anything goes wrong. There's um, a big difference between so, as low as possible and, and really low. Realistic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, so. I mean, as low as possible, I think, is important. There, there is an element of where there is a kind of thing you can do if you've got um, you know, a, a decent amount of your own uh, money from whatever uh, uh, to risk, uh, where you can not do as low as possible, but as low as you can afford. You, know, you can say, okay, these are all my costs. Hmm. That's pointing towards, say, a $19,000 initial um, uh, uh, funding goal. But 
you know, I've looked around at the failed Kickstarters, and generally it was the ones with the higher goal, initial goals that had a hard time getting to that initial funding point, uh, because generally, you know, there, there's a certain class of backer that won't show up until you've got uh, your funding. Um, uh, uh, so that can be that can potentially be a factor. So you can look at it and go, okay, well, I think I can afford to eat the cost of the art. Because ultimately, if this fails, then I can potentially repurpose the art in some other project, or you know, go go with digital or something something like that. But uh, 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 you know, eventually, there's only so many things you can afford to drop out, and you really need to be honest about the stuff that you've left in the community. I uh, think you that that way. I'm not saying I'm, <laughs> well, right? But uh, I've got, but and for some people, uh, the, the the calculation is I can afford to drop out. And that's entirely valid. Um, uh, no, I don't mean to drop. I mean you can drop things if you can drop them. But I mean the, the taking the risk of eating it on your own. You know, some people will put an entire project on their credit card and then basically kickstart their credit card bill. And, no, no, that's not, that's not the sort of thing I'm talking about. Okay. Um, uh, just just you know, be realistic about the the, the the stuff that is the the reach, the thing that you're actually coming to Kickstarter and eating it for. Yeah. Um, I, I think oh, yeah. it is part of part of part of what factors into that sort of thing. But that may be a little bit more, maybe a, a better as a second Kickstarter technique. And you know, for your first one, just try to define the scope of the project as, uh, as you know, tightly as you can. Um, yeah, sure. Can you also talk about maybe some of the other sort of hidden costs that you might not initially think about? Like that just, oh, just about what I was going to get to. All right. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so there's a. Uh, so I've done four of these so far, and I. Published a total, if you count T-shirts and stuff, of tw twelve things with the thirteenth on the way shortly. And every time there's something new to fuck up. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and so what I do is I say, all right, using all of my knowledge of having been in publishing since 2005, uh, I'm going to make this guess. It's going to cost ten thousand dollars. And I'm just going to assume it's going to cost 25% more than that, which seems ridiculous. But I have a note on my spreadsheet that says, stop trying to turn this number down. <laughs> because that number is really, really important. Because there, there's not been a single project that I've done where things went just the way that I expected. My shipping costs skyrocketed. They went up by over 50% um, on one of my projects. Because I started the project, there was a political fight in Congress, and they changed the way that that the post office was, was uh, uh, organized, and that made my shipping costs go up. Plus, I had never expected to have to print so many, which meant that I had to pay for handling. Uh, and I just, it, it, it was inconceivable to me that I would need to do that. And you might look back and say, well, I was silly for that to be inconceivable. But I guarantee you there's something next time that should have been obvious, but I, there's no way for me to think about it. And I'm somebody who's fairly experienced in this. So I, some people do 30%, some people do 25%, and I think people who do less than that might have reason to be more confident in their um, abilities to estimate what's going to happen in their lives. I am. Uh, I have a question. Back to that number what you should put as your goal. Right. You're saying the absolute bare minimum is possible? Uh, yeah, uh, and bare minimum means what <clears throat> uh, I need manufacturing costs, I need shipping, I need to pay myself, I need to pay my graphic designer. Like all those things, 
like including your own profit, which doesn't have and to be including the margin of error on every one of those. Right, right, right. Twenty five percent, right? Plus twenty five percent. When uh, when you've done gone through, you've thought about this all the way from conceptualization to manufacture to shipping in, shipping out, and whatever other if you have if you have other backer levels where you have to do the same things for which probably isn't a great idea anyway. Um, that's your minimum. Uh, and if you look at it, and like every time I sort of look at it, I'm like, oh my god, $9,000. Like the last one that I did, it's outrageous success was $5,400, $5,600, whatever. It's 50% more, but that's my cost. If I if I can't raise that, I can't afford to do this project. And it went fine. Like, like, it went really well. That, that went about 900%. That went fine. But, uh, it's really scary. Like in retrospect, you're like, well, of course, you know, it's saying like a robot spider. Like, that's going to be popular, but you don't know that. You don't know how popular your thing is going to be, and the degree of self-doubt where you can basically start to cost yourself money, where you're paying people to, you're paying somebody else for somebody to pay your game, play your game. Just it don't mean that you won't get to go around and make another thing because you'll have crashed yourself in the process. So that, that that minimum is a is is a real minimum. Don't, it's not like it's not like you're saying how much money am I comfortable asking for. You're saying what is my actual minimum. And you look at that and you say that's fifteen thousand dollars. But it's fifteen thousand dollars. Like you can't argue with those numbers. Um, and that just means you need to run a good campaign. Or it might mean that you say I can't do this to Kickstarter, but that's probably not true. Anything you wanted to add about shipping costs? That you yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm going to try to pick yeah. up that. Um, uh, I mean, we've, we've mentioned shipping, and <laughs> really shipping, uh, uh, it, it's it can easily be at like anywhere from 25 to 40% of your project's outlay um, at the end of the day, depending on you know, factors like uh, weight, packing materials, um, paying other people to do the shipping for you, which I'm a big fan of. Um, uh, Hidden costs can also come from, uh, you know, if you're, if, uh, uh, not every product needs threshold, but uh, if you've got something that is you know, potentially amp uh, putting more things in the box or putting more pages in the book or what have you, um, uh, that that changes the footprint, that changes the weight, um, and that has the ripple effect into shipping as well. I mean, because shipping is the part, I think part of the reason that shipping is such the, the, the bugbear for, for Kickstarters is that. Almost every decision you make that affects a physical product ripples into that, and 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 the, and the shipping is where you have the final reckoning for whatever choices you made along the way. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I was working at a pretty small scale. Uh, I think my final Kickstarter numbers were around like 250 people, um, and and there were still a lot of hidden costs there, yeah. and uh, some of them were sort of amusing. Like I I did all the shipping myself, and. Um, there's one grumpy person at the post office who always would not charge mine as a flat thing. He always charged it as a package. So my shipping rates ended up varying just because one person would do like, this is a flat book, and another person did, this is a poofy thing. And like sometimes it would add five or more dollars to international shipping costs. Um, so I was always like, please get Dan, please get Dan. Um, <laughs> and when, when, you know, when Dan wasn't there at the post office, my shipping always was high. Um, and uh, other little things added up, like little things around marketing, like if I'd run off to a convention or something while the Kickstarter was happening, um, and I needed to print stuff locally, uh, that 
can be really expensive, like, oh, I'll print these business cards because I ran out, or I'll print these thank you notes. Uh, that stuff added up quickly. Yeah. Uh, there are a lot of things that can look very small if you're only looking at the unit cost, but you need to remember that a lot of things are scaling with your backer account. Um, uh, and uh, uh, I think that's kind of that too. You can go like, oh yeah, sure, I'm gonna I'm gonna put like four bookmarks in with this. This is a real world example from uh, Designers of Dragons uh, Kickstarter. Um, I'm gonna put in uh, like a bookmark for each of the four books that we've got uh, that that got kickstarted here, um, uh, and you know, print those out and get them out. And I think that was a thousand dollar line item by the end, if, if, because you know we've got a, a, a you know a number of people to. To, to, to ship to, um, uh, and uh, uh, you know, I was okay with that. You know, I kind of knew that that was going to scale up, but I knew that because I was six Kickstarters in at that point. Um, and uh, uh, you know, that's just an example of you, you, you think you're adding in just this little tiny extra thing, multiplied by the however many. It's that it's actually you really need to look at it in terms of um, what is my unit percentage of my thing, what, what's the minimum number of them that I'm going to need to produce uh, uh, to supply the whole Kickstarter at whatever scale. Alright, check this out. <clears throat> My mobile frame zero weighs, uh, the, the break point for, per, for first class mail is 13 ounces. Mobile frame zero weighs 12.98 ounces. That's because of a decision that I made about using really nice paper because I was doing really well. My unit cost dropped. I thought I'm gonna use this heavy paper. It's gonna look nice and slick, like it's like it's, it's, I wanted it to look like a. Um, uh, there's a genre of giant robot art books from Japan. I want to I want to sort of have yeah, this yeah. sort of slick appeal. I didn't know what it was gonna weigh in the end. Turned out it was 12.98 ounces. The envelope that I used could have. I was doing this with somebody else who knows how to how to lean these things. I made it to be a particular size so that it would fit in a flat rate uh, box. Uh, but we weren't doing it. We weren't doing it with flatter. I use that sometimes. It's conveniently just a little about the size of a DVD case, which is good because there are envelopes that are made for it. If it was padded, it came out to 13.01 ounces, and my uh, shipping went from about a buck to about five bucks. Over the course of 2,400 shippings, you can see how that might induce some panic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So fortunately, they knew what they were doing. They're like, we have some other envelopes. We're going to try these other envelopes. And they, they saved my butt. Another variety of that uh, is is the um, if you're talking about domestic shipping and your product is a book. That is the transition point at which you are no longer making a medium mail shipment uh, because you decided you're going to add in a single die. Congratulations, that is not media. So that is not a medium mail thing. Your costs for shipping are just double. Um, uh, you know, little decisions like that. Like even the bookmarks can occasionally be like. Edge case, uh, like some some shippers might be like, well, we we can't do that because that's uh, that, that, that that's well, essentially it's not bound. That might be considered a um, advertising or promotional thing or something like that, and stuff like that. But you know, I mean, in, in my perspective, you know, you put it in the book, it's part of the book. Yeah, right. You know, and so you can kind of get a, get around the, the, that meeting mail concern a little bit there, but generally because you've got a paper item. <laughs> And you just might never have thought about your bookmark making it so that your shipping costs. And if you're going from medium mail to uh, level under heavy, right? So yeah. to priority, you're talking about uh, I mean, medium mail for it, it's, it's like a five dollar to ten dollar yeah. jump. Right, right, right. Yeah. Yeah. Ugh. yeah. 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 <laughs> uh, I want to move on to, to questions because we've got okay. all sorts of stories of disasters that we could regale you with, but I want to hear about your specific disasters you're trying to avert. Can you talk a little bit about 
Taxes, yes, that is in fact the hidden cost. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we're just going to have you guys tell us what the hidden costs are, and then we'll give you examples. Um, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, uh, specifically the way that I timed the date for Kickstarter was uh, a bit of a tax dodge in the sense that I launched the campaign in December but concluded in January. Uh, because when a, uh, a Kickstarter concludes is when the cards are charged and when the funds are transferred to you. That's the income event, not when they pledge. So uh, the uh, uh, had I ended it in December, um, I had you know congratulations four hundred thousand dollars of income and absolutely no days suspended in terms of business expenses. Your, your tax year is over. Boom. <laughs> now um, I think there I think accounting has started to catch up to that, and I think there um, if you can get access to an accountant that's savvy enough to understand what crowdfunding is. And certain ideas of income deferral. If you say this is this is income not earned yet, you might be able to bump that into the next tax year. Um, I don't know that I trust that yet, but maybe that's me being old-fashioned. Um, but uh, certainly at the time that I was running Big Core, um, uh, that kind of thing of yeah, let's move it so that the income occurs in January, so we have 11 months to turn income into income expense. If you're if you're doing the kind of math that we were talking about earlier, your your intent. Is to spend the money that you got. Um, yes, some of it is going in your pocket. That's still kind of spending. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and, so you, and it's you, also you the buffer right, in which most of your other things is going to come out. Yeah. So let's be real there. But the entire amount that you get, you know, the Okay, you're talking like percentage. What do you what do you ask me? Uh, is going to go to taxes? Is, is considered income? No, 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 no. Because it can be business expenses. So if you uh, if, if you if you get a thousand dollars on on a Kickstarter project. And you're just a person doing it, right? So it goes into your regular income taxes. Um, and it's going to cost you, let's say, $500 to produce this, you get $500. Because by the time December 31st rolls around, you spend that $500 on manufacturing and shipping or whatever you're doing, you're paying taxes on the $500. Right. Um, not on the entire right. It's not income. Most of it, I mean, it's awesome if you manage to turn that much of a profit, but then yes, you have to pay taxes on it. But yeah. uh, I mean, the Fred and I have talked about this before. We, like, it's pretty good when you pull a ten percent profit on a on a project. <laughs> yeah. uh, there's a lot of people to manage and things to move around. Um, so, so no, it's, it's, you're not like paying taxes on the whole thing unless you fuck it up and you run into December and then don't have time to do this stuff. And your accountant doesn't realize that you can do accrual accounting to push that to the next year. Yeah, but that would also potentially complicate your books. Yes, it is. And it may be obvious, but like open up another account. Uh, so every number that you're dealing with, so you can just have a record of all of your business expenses, not just to your personal. Sure, we can. Why? I've always assumed that people want to do it uh, because they want to make money. Well, but they, you're gonna, when, when you're doing that, you're going to want to sit down with an accountant and talk about what the various kinds of those things are and what your obligations to tax report are. With like S-Corps and stuff like that, you may be doing like quarterly reporting of your taxes and estimated tax payments and, and things like that. And that can end up giving you a much heavier load on the accounting side than you might necessarily be ready, ready to do. Um, uh, it's not as simple as saying, oh, I'm going to form an LLC because there are actually... I think two or three, I think three subtypes of how LLCs are actually handled for, for accounting slash tax purposes. 
um, if you're doing something that is a sole uh, sole owner or sole partnership, partnership. Uh, sole partnership thing, uh, whatever. <laughs> I, I don't know the terminology that well. Um, uh, uh, it actually passes through as personal uh, uh, taxation. That can be apportioned out amongst your business partners. Uh, you know, that, that's one of the corpus on that. But still, ends up being you know personal taxing them. So they're you, they're you do this in social isolation. Um, yeah, I mean, what I do is that I sort of do like my, I operate my business as myself with a PBA, you know, doing business as name. Um, and my numbers are small enough right now that the like next level of incorporation uh, that I might consider just isn't isn't necessary um, for me yet. Uh, and I, I think people often have an idea that to be doing business, you need to be like a corporation, uh, and you don't. Um, but um, it is worth being aware of the fact that if you're paying, you know, if you're working with somebody else or paying somebody else, and you pay them above a certain amount, they need to factor that in on their taxes, and you need to have what is it, 1099? 1099. Um, yeah. You know, so it's good to be familiar with, you know, what the rules are depending on who you're paying and who you're working with. Um, but I just do business as myself. And I, I mean, I've actually talked with my accountant about becoming an S corp, and the question is the amount of work that we would have to do every year, and if it's, if it's worth it, like, does it make me more money? And the answer, the last time we checked in, which six months ago or so, the answer was no. That's basically, I'm going to wind up paying my accountant for a lot of accounting meetings. Yeah. And the scale actually has to be pretty significant for for S corp to start making sense. Is at least yeah. what I've been I mean, I, it, it feels to me like. We, you would, we probably would want to do we that. Have a, we, have a, we have a uh, sort of earmark with my account to have a conversation eventually, but of course I've had no freaking time. Yeah, yeah. right. Yeah. <laughs> so should transition to someone. Or you had his hand up for a while. There's just a quick question. Sure. What is the best place for you guys to do math? Uh, check. Oh, uh, man. Uh, that's uh, why are you shifting? Yeah. About what you guys There are have the exact uh, there are distributors who are willing to do uh, ACD and oh. Alliance are, are available. That Alliance has actually done the fulfillment warning uh, on other things. Uh, IPR is willing to do it. Um, uh, oh, yeah, uh, of course. But, yeah. but uh, <laughs> I've had conversations with the Press Revolution and IPR, uh, which have also amounted to, yeah, the potential size of chip out that you're talking about is actually more than we are comfortable saying committing to handling, so um, please consider your other options. Um, uh, for most of our uh, Kickstarter, since we started getting into distribution, uh, we've done our uh, shipping uh, out of the lines because they've also been doing like fulfillment for our web store, so we're kind of already set up for that. Um, uh, we are, for Designers and Dragons, we are trying uh, uh, ACD, which is basically their biggest competitor, um, uh, to see how they do because uh, ACD has done uh, specifically board game fulfillment uh, for uh, clean uh, games, uh, uh, Kickstarters. Um, so those are basically uh, find, find people out there who are already shipping board games every day to retailers anyway, um, and see if they are also you know, able and willing to offer you a, a, a you know one-time fulfillment deal. Um, and if you're already in some sort of partnership with them, obviously it's going to be a little bit easier to make happen. I use um, Topodoco. Uh, who they, you know, it's, it's a webcomic merch. Yeah. So if you go to topodoco.com, uh, T O P A. No, 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 no. It's it's oh my god, it's the, no, it's Topodoco. T O P 
A T O C O. Because your business name was. Yeah, yeah, right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, it's it's an inside joke about an inside joke about a guy's web comment, and he started selling T-shirts, and so he called it the Father Show because people who read his web comment would get it. And then his other webcomic friends asked him to start selling their T-shirts too, and now he's stuck with this completely unwieldy name. So they'll, they'll learn from that mistake. Um, so they mostly do <clears throat> they mostly do comics. They're looking for people who have a fan base. So like they can't do everybody's promotions. Basically, they're looking for people who have some sort of fan base and then uh, can move things. They're really, they're really good at moving books and T-shirts. I don't know if. Uh, they're interested in doing board games, although they're doing yeah, they have uh, they have a service called Make That Thing, which it helps people do Kickstarters. I'm using them because I know that like I'm exceeding my ability to deal with the logistics of it, and they're actually pretty good at it. Uh, so they're doing that with all sorts of Kickstarters. I've seen them doing it with CDs and stuff, but I, I don't know if they're if they're Interesting doing something that's sort of unwieldy as a board game. Uh, part of the 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 one of, one of the nice side effects, although it comes with some spam, um, of the rise in crowdfunding and the greater awareness of it is that there are starting to be a lot of uh, uh, second services like looking to sell to, to project runners. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so you're also starting to see a rise of like um, on demand. Uh, fulfillment operations like ShipStation.com and, and uh, like there's even a fulfillment by Amazon thing out there that you potentially uh, look into uh, uh, using. And uh, in particular, if you end up using a, um, a, a, a second party uh, a pledge management service like Backerkit, um, they uh, have some. They, they both have tools to print up your postage for you and your printing li- and your shipping labels for you if you want to do if you don't fulfill yourself. And uh, with a few services like uh, ShipStation or something like that, um, they also have like integrations. You can you know poke a button and all of your all of your order information flows over there. Um, and and uh, pardon? What's the name of that company? Uh, Backerkit. Um, yeah, uh, I, I don't necessarily recommend Backerkit. This is this is actually Plugmanagers are second uh, uh, sort of topic there, but I don't uh, necessarily recommend using a back uh, something like Backerkit unless you think you've got. Um, a reasonably good case for people to add on additional items, like if there was like an expansion along with your board game that that, that funded, but you know a number of backers might have missed the opportunity to up their pledge during the campaign. If you, if, so basically, um, your, your test case for a backer kit is: um, Do I have people who want to pledge to the campaign after the campaign's over? That's a little iffy uh, psychologically, but uh, moving on. Um, uh, do I have add-on or upgrade? Possibilities that people are going to be interested in, um, and in some cases, um, if you decided to defer, um, and I can get the map of this, defer your uh, costs of international shipping to people adding that on after the campaign is over, uh, so that it doesn't distort the pursuit of your goal. Um, using something like Backerkit gives you an opportunity to say, okay, uh, uh, for um, you know people going to this particular uh, destination, uh, they will now. Uh, do a separate uh, billing of you know forty dollars or something like that, uh, that uh, to that, and we did that with Designers and Dragons uh, for our international stuff, and I think we brought in like an additional thirteen thousand in almost entirely international shipping stuff uh, uh, that way. Uh, but it, it meant that we could pursue our goals of the campaign during the campaign without that um, that large chunk of additional international dollars. 
pushing things towards particular goals or stretch goals when really it was actually all cost. Um, and that's that's something I'm starting to see as a little bit more of a popular strategy for dealing with the impact of, um, of international uh, shipping fees on your bottom line. Uh, you just need to be very, very, very clear and explicit in your communications with your backers, your international backers, about the fact that, yes, this $80 tier does not include shipping. You will be paying shipping afterwards, and look at this post over here where I you know, lay out for you in Australia, that probably means you're going to be adding another $60 in shipping you know, or something like that. And you know, make sure you got your numbers right before you offer that. So sorry, you, you kind of tugged on the thread on the sweater and all of that. Yeah. Uh, can you uh, talk a little bit about um, deciding on what tiers to offer? I'm particularly interested in uh, Joshua with the uh, mobile frame zero. You had high-level tiers where uh, backers coordinated with you to create content, yeah. Yeah. and I never found out how that went. Oh my God, uh, so much work. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> all right. So the deal was, I want somebody who doesn't have a lot of money to be able to back in a meaningful way. So put put in ten dollars for a PDF. It's a Creative Commons game. My future games will probably also be Creative Commons. They'll be getting that anyway. But what that means is that they get to enthusiastically vote with a small amount of money for the game. Uh, Kickstarter is sing between about twenty and twenty-five dollars. If you have something that has a good margin at twenty to twenty-five dollars, people just throw money at you just because they're curious. Like it's, it's it's apparently a small enough amount of money that it doesn't really bother them. Now it has to be something that's turning a real profit for you. But then from there up, everything you might say, all right, well if somebody wants to put a thousand dollars into this thing, they should get something really really good. And the the concern is that you start eating into your you can start eating into your, into your profit by offering them something good, and when they they think that they're doing something really supportive, but really what they're I mean you're telling them they're doing something supportive, and they're at, at, at tremendous cost, and then they're supporting they can wind up supporting you less than than other people. Like if they, uh, very often people who I'm trying to remember what it was there was. There was a level that I put in, which was basically what the market would bear, which was not a reasonable amount of money. I was making uh, $2 more between a $25 level and a $125 level, I think. And it was just because I was putting in something that was generating a lot of enthusiasm, uh, but it the cost was really, really high. So... Uh, Aside from that, as they got bigger, the, the profit margin would be greater and greater and greater. And I think that's sort of the way that, that's the way that I think about it, and I think it's the way you have to think about it. Otherwise, the people who are your most enthusiastic backers are possible. In, in the algebra that is planning your Kickstarter, um, uh, I think with tiers, it's important to look at each tier and say, okay, how much of a percentage of this dollar amount is going to cost? Um, and then look at the one that has that the, the biggest number there. I think this is my most costly tier, and assume that everyone is going to back at that level. Um, and so then you can get a sense of realistically how much non-cost revenue you're, you're, you're going to have left over to go towards things. That, sorry, non-immediate cost uh, sort of things that, that I'm talking more like production um, to go towards things like shipping or uh, oops factors or you know personal profit. 
Yeah, I mean, for for figuring out the tiers, it was another sort of market research thing. I'm going to stop using that term because I didn't go to business school. I looked at other people's Kickstarters and looked at what uh, backer levels they offered. Um, and especially what I did was in the few months before launching my Kickstarter, I watched, um, I just watched the, you know, role-playing game Kickstarters that were happening, and I watched what backer levels they offered and which ones were successful, um, and paid attention to the ones that had, you know, only one backer, um, and thought, well, okay, why, why didn't this one work? Um, I think especially if it's your first Kickstarter, if you can, keep it simple. Don't over-offer backer levels, especially because they can be really confusing. Um, I don't know if you've ever scrolled down a Kickstarter and you're like, well, why Why is this $10 level different than these other five $10 levels? And sometimes the answer is because Kickstarter doesn't let you edit the description after one person <laughs> so, is pledged to the level. Um, uh, so yeah, keeping I, I tried to just sort of keep it simple and um, make sure that everyone every level was distinct but also purposeful or impurposeful. Um, yeah, and I also, because it was my first day, decided not to aim too high. Uh, like, nobody knew me, so I wasn't going to offer a, you know, fly to Western Massachusetts to have dinner with the designer for X amount of money. I don't think you should do that on your first Kickstarter. Well, and arguably, the, the, those sort of uh, premium reward tiers, uh, they're also an opportunity for somebody right close to the end of the campaign to suddenly cause your total drop by $2,000 or something like that, right? So um, uh, I, I prefer the more populist uh, approach to tier design. Um, I'm looking for a, a, a usually a, I'm talking the role-playing game context, but I'm usually looking at like a 10-ish 10, 10 dollar uh, tier that's digital, that more digital goodies get pushed into um, for no additional money um, as, as, the, uh, as the campaign progresses. Um, a 20-ish dollar buy-in for like the, the basic unit or a, one, of the, one of the basic units and then you start looking, because $25, I think, as you were uh, talking about, is the most popular um, reward, pledge to uh, reward here on Kickstarter. Um, uh, uh, and then just kind of trying to keep each new tier at a, I don't know, like reasonable value for, 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 uh, for the backers and just try to drive as many people uh, towards those 10 and 20 to $25 levels because that's where they're, they're, they're they're not necessarily going to, in aggregate, be the largest chunk of your, your final um, backer total. Certainly, when you've also got $80 packages that are also popular, obviously that's going to be the source of a lot of your um, uh, your, your backing. But you're also walking away from a Kickstarter with a, um, a new list of fans. Uh, and some of those, what I'm referring to as populist strategies, are, uh, are, are eyeball grabs. Um, they want people who are willing to learn more things about you in the future. And one of the things you can do when you survey the, uh, the backers at the end of the Kickstarter um, is, uh, and this is important, uh, put in, yes, as you knew, I am ready. Um, uh, 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 um, is you can, uh, is asking the question, um, would you be interested in being added to our mailing list? Um, because you don't want to assume that every single person in the back of the Kickstarter wants to be um, marketed to. Um, don't use your updates after the Kickstarter is over too heavily for promoting your other stuff. Yeah, maybe one post, but um, but generally it's 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 going to be looked at as a more ethical business practice. I think long term, particularly um, to ask people to opt in, and then you grab the you know you grab your spreadsheet, you sort by who said yes to that, and you grab their email addresses, and you 
subscribe them to your MailChimp list or whatever. Um, and and uh, uh, you know, suddenly now you've got people who are engaged in your second Kickstarter, your third Kickstarter, your, your board game, whatever. All right, so you've laid your social groundwork, you've projected your costs, you've made, you've done all the algebra, made some really enticing uh, reward levels, you hit go. What is your life like during the campaign, like during that 30 days that you have? What is it like you personally? Sure, yeah. Um, uh, <laughs> oh, the first like 20 minutes, I was like, Everybody hates me. <laughs> Why hasn't it funded yet? Um, <laughs> then I sort of calmed down. Um, it's it's a super exciting month, um, and I mean, it's a super exciting month. I think also if you're getting the level of success that you hoped for, I imagine that for some people it's a really stressful month. Um, it's definitely a month of being sort of married to your phone or computer and refreshing a lot. Yeah. Um, I mean, I was lucky in that I had, um, you know, we, we exceeded our funding goal early. Um, so the rest of the month was nice. It was nice to just sort of say, like, okay, I've, yeah. Um, and one of the things that, uh, and this is another thing, so I won't get into it too much, um, the next step was that people started to bother. Um, uh, us about stretch goals. So, um, and I was working closely with an artist, um, and so yeah, there were just a lot of conversations in that month of like, okay, people are bugging us about stretch goals. So we thought that the work was over, but what, you know, what does the work look like now? You do um, not have to listen to those people. Yeah, uh, it's amazing. They're trying to give you business <laughs> advice. You don't need to yeah. listen to strangers' business yeah, don't, advice. Don't overdo it on they don't have your spreadsheet. Yeah. <laughs> So it was exciting, and um, you know, it was great for me, and also just you know, great to just keep in touch with. Uh, this was the the most important month, or an important month, to keep in touch with people who are sending you messages or have questions. Um, so it's definitely a month of being really on. You have a very demanding day job. That's for your day job. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's it's um it's almost traumatic. Honestly, it, 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 it's it's because it's something you you have these moments of control and you sort of take control. Somebody says, "Hey, I'd like to do an interview with you," and you're like, "Oh, great! Like this is something I can do that will have an effect." Otherwise, the worst thing that Kickstarter has done is they've made it so that the number auto refreshes. So they've taken away the one thing you can do. Yeah. So most of the time, like like you've done all that work, and like now it's working or it's not. And like you, like you might feel that both of those in minutes of each other, like oh my god, it's over. Uh, my last one, uh, I needed twenty nine thousand dollars, I think, <clears throat> uh, and I raised fifteen thousand in the first eighteen hours or something like that. And then it was the longest four weeks of my life. <laughs> that was so hard. And like I can see, I was like, it's going up. There's going to be this Camaro tail at the end. Intellectually speaking, I've done enough of these. I know this is going to be okay, but I do not feel okay. No. Like I couldn't get any media traction. Nobody wanted to blog about it. Nobody wanted to do an interview. <clears throat> I, uh, I've got ideas about why that happened, and it funded. It was fine. It was. I mean, I said, all right. So I think my market is going to be twenty-nine thousand dollars big, and I raised thirty-three thousand dollars something like that. Basically, what happened is I was right. 
And the whole time I was going, oh no, I'm right. It's not better than I hoped. Like, it, it, like it, none of it makes sense. It's extremely emotional. Um, yeah, it's, it's going to be emotionally intense no matter what. Um, whether it's a slog, because, uh, you know, it's just taking off a long time to get people engaged, enthusiastic, and so forth. It can be devastating if you end up with a, um, a lack of funding, right? If it, it fails. Um, uh, luckily, I haven't dealt with that, but it, it, it's, I, I've seen it happen to folks for whom I did feel like empathy for, and so I've at least gotten a second arrow. Um, or it can be um, exhilarating. <laughs> yeah. um, I, I mean, I've joked before that it, it, yeah, kick, uh, you know, Kickstarters are kind of my uh, Olympic sport. Um, and I really mean that in all respects. Like, at the end of that, that marathon or race or whatever, does that athlete look emotionally calm, not at all physically drained? No. <laughs> you know, you, you come on the other side of it, panting. Sleep for 14 hours. Yeah. And it will take over your life. So think about, think about that aspect of uh, your, your um, campaign like setting. Like, because really, most of the action is going to be in the first 48 to 96 hours, in the last 48 to 96 hours. Now, I'm not saying that that means you should just run a seven-day campaign, although some people do. Um, uh, but just be aware that the, the middle is probably the place where you're going to be most psychologically vulnerable um, uh, to, to whatever has been true about those first 96 hours. Uh, yeah, it was really helpful for me to know that like, I had gone to a few of these panels before and people had talked about the curve um, of, you know, the, in the beginning, people back, and then there's this, you know, these few weeks in the middle uh, where it's really slow and, you know, I was getting sort of a few people a day. Um, and then Kickstarter also sends a 48-hour reminder if somebody's starved of the project, and that, uh, that was a big deal, um, I guess. Uh, if you can star a project on Kickstarter and say, remind me later, and it sends a 48-hour reminder email, and after that email went out, I, I hadn't been sort of consciously aware of it, but I think there was like over a thousand more dollars um, like after that email yeah. went out that came in and, you know, like that hour. Um, so that was really cool. Um, uh, one of the sites, uh, TechTrack, K-I-C-K-T-R-A-Q, um, you can uh, uh, you know, plug in uh, URLs of uh, projects, both past, past and present, um, and assuming that the site was aware of it and tracking it, which I think it's actually automatically yeah. doing now, um, uh, you can go, you can click through to their day graph, and you can see, like you talk about it as a Camaro tail, because in the Kickstarter dashboard, uh, the thing you're only ever seeing both, well, not ever seeing, but you're seeing, you're seeing it accumulate, right? So it, 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 the initial curve usually looks like this. That is your Camaro tail, right? But if you look at the, like, how much happened day to day on KickTrack, it's a Batman graph because it's right? It's competing visions here as Batman versus Camaro. Well, well, really, it's, I think it's the Batmobile is ultimately what a Kickstarter <laughs> oh, yeah. is, right? Yeah. It's a Camaro <laughs> with Batman. The next time we do this, it's Joe Paul Batman. Yeah, there we go. Yeah. So you had mentioned that uh, once somebody has pledged uh, that. Well, that tier is uneditable. Yep. Are there other, throughout the entirety of the project, particularly with regards to content or other uh, workings with Kickstarter, are there other small minds that you can help us avoid? Uh, do not expect to be able to edit your Kickstarter front page um, uh, the first second after your campaign concludes. So 
uh, the, the first second after the campaign concludes. Um, Kickstarter is expecting you to put out most of the new content about your uh, campaign, particularly after it has, has wrapped up, after the funding period has wrapped up, through the updates. Um, they kind of want as much stuff to lock down at the point that people might have made a purchasing decision about it as possible. Um, they recognize that during the, while the campaign is running, your front page is something you are going to want to update you know, because you've got new graphics to put out there, you've got additional information to clarify, what have you. Um, uh, but they don't want that changing after the Kickstarter is concluded because at that point, everybody who's in is in. And the, com the common shared understanding that is the front page should be locked down at that point. Similarly, that's why they don't um, want people to be able to edit, uh, sorry, edit their reward tiers after somebody's already committed money to it because, uh, yes, um, I, I you know, put in $10 for a PDF. Um, now the $10 description says I get nothing. Right? They don't want that to happen because the, the reward tier is kind of the contract of, uh, uh, that, that, that occurs at that point. So th that's the that's a sort of uh, uh, thing. And those are, I think, the two main gotchas in terms of what to expect and in terms of what you can and can't communicate. Do, do uh, they allow you to put in information about how someone can contact you afterwards? Um, Beyond the contact this project runner or standard box that's on there, no, not really. You kind of not in the main page. You can't update the, the the video, the graphic, or any of the text on the on the front page. All of that has to go into the yep. During it, you can, um, which is good, particularly if you are running a campaign that's heavy with stretch goals, because there may be graphics that you're updating to show which is a lot and which hasn't. Or you know, as you reveal a new goal, you might be you know, adding an additional paragraph or something on, on there. Um, and uh, one thing that you can change about a reward tier um, after people have pledged to it is uh, you can turn it into limited quantity um, or unlimited quantity. The market is sold out or not. Um, but that's mainly about, like, I don't want people to be pledging to this tier anymore. <laughs> um, uh, uh, type thing. Right? We have to wrap up in a minute. Um, but uh, one thing that is maybe something to just be aware of is also, um, you know, I think a lot of people want to launch their Kickstarter to um, coincide with a specific event and just be mindful of the fact that there are waiting periods between when you sign up, uh, when you connect to Amazon. Uh, like Amazon has to connect to your bank and know that your bank information is valid, and sometimes that can take up to a week. Um, and then after you submit your Kickstarter for review, Kickstarter has to approve it. And this um, is especially a first time. Yeah, and, and this is the stuff that can get really confusing and like really threw me off because I was trying to um, coincide with a specific convention, and um, there was some bank stuff that was just taking a really long time, and then. Um, the Kickstarter approval process was also taking a few days, yeah. and I, it was a little unclear to me if after they approved it, my Kickstarter was just going to be live. Um, you can get your Kickstarter approved months before you plan on launching, yeah. and you choose when you press the button yeah. to go live. So make that's your, something make, to make, be aware yeah, of. Yeah, I would definitely say make your Kickstarter ready to be launched uh, at least a good two weeks before your actual planned launch date. Uh, because that will give you the time, like she was saying, of, uh, of uh, getting your Amazon stuff payment set up, uh, getting your uh, uh, things approved, and also um, you can send, you can generate a little preview URL that you can share amongst your friends. And, you know, get their feedback on, hey, you completely forgot to do this thing with that here. Oh yeah, I should edit that before people start, uh, you know, before the public starts coming in contact with it, that sort of thing. But um, it's 
Task Force or Wiki Chat or something. Thanks, everybody. <laughs> Thanks very much.